0: And he said, there was no way. They just don't have pencils like this in all of Mindanao. They've got them up in Manila. But there's no place that he could have gotten this pencil except from God. And he says, let me tell you what's happened over the last three years. He says, there's been a thousand people come to Jesus Christ because of that yellow pencil. Hallelujah. (laughs) Hallelujah. Now, can you understand what Jesus is saying when he says, except you become converted as a little child, you'll not enter into the kingdom of heaven. I can't picture myself sitting out there on the steps asking God to give me a pencil. I would have, uh, I'd have had all kinds of schemes as to how to get one. I'd have formed a committee. <laughs> Or I'd have taken out a loan or done something. No, he just says, Father, I need a pencil. And the father, because he's a great and generous and loving father, says, here's one of my children who doesn't have a pencil. Come on, Gabe, how about going down there and getting him one? See? (laughs) I'm excited about that. I'm excited about men and women who become as little children and attempt the impossible for the glory of God. I got a great friend of mine, Martin Sweets, from Louisville, Kentucky. Martin has told me the secret of how he has built his, uh, his business into a multi-million dollar concern. And he said that the, the secret of this was that he learned, the, he learned the difference between that which was urgent and that which was important. And you see, one of the reasons that I seldom attain the impossible in my life is because I haven't learned this difference yet. I haven't learned the difference between the, between the urgent and the important. Uh, it's the important things that I should be giving priority to. Peter says with diligence, with discipline, there are things that God wants you to do in your life. And Satan will hammer you to death with the urgent things which will keep you from ever getting around to the important. And so one of the reasons that I have great difficulty attaining the goals that God has given to me is that I'm unable to give priority to the important things that God has said. And I spend my time oiling the squeaky wheels of the urgent matters that just won't wait. Jesus knew how to distinguish between the urgent and the important. You remember that situation in John 11 where Mary and Martha send to Jesus and say, Our brother is dying. Please come right now, quickly. And Jesus waits three days before he shows up. And when he gets there, Lazarus is not only dead, he's buried. They've already put him in the ground. And he he risks the wrath and the ire of his dear friends who have said, oh, if you had only come when we told you to come. And Jesus said, I've got to do what the Father tells me to do. I can't be pushed here and yon by my friends, even my dear friends. I do only that which the Father tells me to do. Now see, Jesus knew that if he went early, he would thwart God's plan because it was far more important for Lazarus to be raised from the dead than it was for him to be healed at that particular time. And I want to challenge you this morning to be so in tune with the Father that you will not be drawn this way and that way by the urgent requests of your friends who say do this, who say do that, who say if you don't do this, you're going to lose this, that you'll only listen to the voice of the Father. I remember several years ago there was a reporter that had traveled halfway around the world to check on some reports of miracles that were coming out of Indonesia and He wrote back and he said when he arrived at the island he began hearing about a Presbyterian minister up on a mountainside uh, who could authenticate some of these reports of miracles that were happening in Indonesia and so uh, he decided to go visit him and it was a long, hard, tedious journey. He had to go to a little town and he had to rent a jeep and he went halfway up the mountain as far as the jeep could go and then he had to take a donkey up The rest of the way they had to walk the last several hundred yards because even the donkey couldn't get there. And he finally came to this little tiny shack up on the mountainside to where this Presbyterian pastor lived. And when he got there and knocked on the door and a woman answered the door and he told the woman who he was. And the woman said, well, I'm sorry, but today is Tuesday and my husband sets aside Tuesday to pray. You'll have to come back tomorrow so here this guy mumbling and grumbling back down the mountainside to his donkey, to his jeep, back down to a little town, has to spend the night and come back tomorrow. Well, when I read this story, something inside of me shouted, Hallelujah! Here is a man up on a mountainside who has learned to differentiate between that which is important, which is talking with God, and that which is urgent, which is talking with a reporter. I want to be that one. I want to be so in tune with God that when he says something, I'll do it regardless of what the rest of the world says. Impossible, they say, you can't do it. God has told me. And away we go. Now, I'm not like that. Instead, if the the doorbell rings while I'm praying, I don't even say, excuse me, God. I just go answer the door. After all, it might be a very important visitor from Indonesia who's come to see me. And I've been known to interrupt my family devotions because of a long-distance telephone call, as though whatever it is that's coming in over the wire is more important than the conversation I'm having with my teenage daughter at the time. I need to learn to differentiate between that which is important and that which is urgent because the reason is if I spend my time with the urgent matters, I'll never do the impossible thing. It'll never get done. It'll get pushed far back to the back of my life and there it'll become like well the dreams you know how they are they become like grizzly bears they go into hibernation in the caves of your mind and they're covered over with the leaves of the important matters and you never get down to them again and I believe God is calling us today to say come on people Go back there into those caves and dig up those childhood dreams. God, when God was speaking to you in those innocent years. And let's be willing to go out and to walk on water for the glory of Jesus. You know, when I was a college student down in Georgia, I was, I was challenged like I've never been challenged before by a soft-spoken Southern preacher who dared to go down to America's Georgia and start a farm where blacks and whites could live together. Now, there were a lot of Southerners who didn't understand. And they burned his buildings, and they dynamited his peanut barn, and they called those who were living on Koinonia Farms communist. But I'll tell you something. Had Clarence Jordan come to me and said, follow me, I would have laid down everything I was doing to have come after him. And I'll tell you why. Because he was unlike any man I had ever known. He was not just talking about brotherhood. He was doing brotherhood. He was living brotherhood, even if it killed him. And I'll tell you something. Men like that were rare in those times. And unfortunately, they're still hard to find. I remember, several years ago, there was a big nationwide movement to draft Billy Graham to run for president. Some of you remember that, and I got all sucked up into that thing. I was living down in Greenwood, South Carolina, and I sent letters out to all my friends saying, you know, this is the time, this is the man we need, and let's come on, let's get on the bandwagon, let's get this thing jacked up, it's time, God's speaking, you know, and, and I was involved in the all of this kind of campaigning, and one day I got a telephone call from Dr. Nelson Bell, who was Billy Graham's uh, father-in-law. And he was very kind on the phone. He says, I understand you've been involved in all this. And I said, yes, sir, we're ready to go. We're going to, you know, get this man in the White House. And he said, well, I've talked to Billy. And he said, he has told me that any way he walks away from being an evangelist is to step down. That even to become president of the United States is a step down from the calling that God has given him as an evangelist. You see, to be president might be urgent, but to preach was important. And he had learned the difference between the two. And that's one of the reasons that God has used that man across these years is because he has not been drawn aside by all of the voices that would call him to do this and to do that. God has set him to do an impossible task. And he's out there with his slingshot, doing it for the glory of God. Jesus was a man of purpose. Jesus spoke to men and men followed him and the reason was they knew that he knew where he was going. They saw in him an authority. He had a goal. He had a purpose. And men will follow a man like that even if he leads them to their death. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing today. Now that's the secret of discipleship. The only man who can disciple someone else is the man who knows where he's going. A man who has heard a call from God and who has said, I'm going in that direction, is the man who is qualified to disciple others. Today we dream our dreams and we see our visions and we say, oh, that's wonderful, if only I could. And and then we stop and we back down and we say, and yet that's impossible. And we put it aside and we, we justify our disobedience with some kind of lame excuse. I believe in every man's life, in every woman's life, in every young person's life, in every child's life, in the kingdom of God, that there is a burning bush. You know what I'm talking about? I believe that someplace in your life there is a bush that's burning and there is a voice that's speaking out of that bush that says, come on, do the impossible. And so here's Moses standing out there in the desert with his shoes off, looking at that burning bush and hearing that voice saying, Moses, back to Egypt. I keep trying to imagine what that conversation must have been like. The King James just doesn't quite catch what I think was going on out there. I would like to hear Moses arguing with that bush. (laughs) Bush? Don't you know that I'm 80 years old? I can't go back to Egypt. They've cast me out. There's no way for me to go back into that church. They told me to leave and never come back again. They've written my name off. They poured acid on it on the church roll. And where I used to be, there's a hole in the page. There's no way for me to go back into that situation. Well, hallelujah. I can remember how I argued with the Lord seven years ago. He asked me to leave the confines of a limited southern parish ministry and to enter out into an area that I'd never been before. He wanted me to write professionally, and it came through a burning bush experience. Dan Malachuk sitting down here is one of the guys that God used to speak out of a, a burning bush. Dan didn't know anything about writing either. He says, he didn't know anything about publishing. I didn't know anything about writing. Dan would get a book and he'd take it down to the printer and say, see this book? And they'd say, yeah. And he says, I want one just like it. That's all he (laughs) That's all he knew about publishing. I didn't know anything about writing. And I tried to argue with the Lord and I said, Lord, I have never written anything before except 7,000 Southern Baptist sermons. (laughs) arguing with the bush well god knew what he was doing since then there's been 17 books that's in seven years and i don't know how many other kind of little things i've done and i'm sharing this with you to just to let you know that with god nothing is impossible you see the dream had been there for years the dream had been there in my life I knew that one day God wanted me to, but I kept putting it aside and putting it aside, and it never was the right time. You know when the right time was? When everything else was wrong. I mean in the most wrong time in my life. God let the bush burn and spoke to me and opened the door for a hundred million other things to happen which are still happening. I remember how I tried to argue with God, just like Moses did. He said, Lord, I can't spell. How can you call on a guy to be a writer who can't spell? And God said, well, I'll send some errands along in the form of editors. And they'll correct your spelling and all your bad grammar. And All I'm asking you to do is just to go in there with your staff and kind of stir things up. and then the body will come together around you and something will happen. You know, ever so often we catch a glimpse of a man who knows where he's going. A man who has heard the voice of God and is marching to it the way Thoreau's marcher marched to the beat of a different drummer. And there's something within me that says, that's the man I'll follow. That's Eden. Here on earth, above the mists and the fog of sin and corruption and procrastination and perversion, here is a man who is going back and is becoming the way God intended for men to be in the very beginning. People who would hear God's voice and would follow after him, would not care about the consequences, would rather die than to be disobedient. That's the kind of man that I'll follow. Remember the story of William Carey? He was a man like that. He was a shoe cobbler in England. And he had a vision. And he had a vision that God wanted him as a shoe cobbler to go to India to carry the gospel to people who had never had the gospel. And nobody had ever done this before. You see, we think we've had foreign missions all our life. We haven't. There had been a thousand years when there had never been a foreign missionary go out from any place. And here's a man who hears God saying, William Carey, I want you to go to India. And so Carey does the right thing. See, he goes to his church and he goes to his elders and he says, fellas, I'm going to present myself. God has told me to go to India as a missionary. And they said, a what? said, God has told me to go and carry the gospel. And they said, that does not fit into our theology. Because the theology that we have is that God speaks sovereignly to people. He does not intend for us to go out. That there is no need for you to go out and to carry the gospel. That God has already saved them or damned them from the foundations of the earth. And even if you go, it's a useless kind of thing. And Carrie said, well, I'm going to go anyway. And they said, you must not go. If you go, you go in disobedience to us. See... There's a situation to where a man has to do what God says rather than what men say. Carey was fashioned after the likeness of the Apostle Peter. And he left England. And he sailed to India, daring to do the impossible. And his wife went insane. And after he had almost translated the gospel, into the Indian language, there was a horrible fire and all of his manuscripts were burned up. And he had to start all over again. Seventeen years of work went up in flames. And he started over again. Even after all these years, Carey's motto still grips the heart of men and God. Attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God. Listen, Christian, it's time for us to get up off of our fat seats and to turn our face towards the burning bush and say, we will do what God is telling us to do. It's time for us to take a a direction, a different direction, where we're not motivated by money, nor motivated by public opinion, nor do we shrink because there is a mountain that stands in our way. We will do it because God has told us to do it. The Bible throbs with stories like this. Jesus calls them the overcomers to where there is no impossible situation. Let me tell you something. The worst of all the heresies Is to despair of those childhood dreams and ideals The things that God placed in our minds while we were still innocent And now we have reached middle life and we have become disillusioned and we have put aside our dreams And we have said they can't be done. I want to tell you something. They can be done. I Don't care if you're 80 years of age. I don't care if you're shut in and you can't get out of your bed I don't care if you have no money whatsoever, I don't care if you have no education, if God puts a dream in your heart, it can be done through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's one of the trumpets that's sounding today that Bob was talking about. The trumpet that says, arise, Christian, conquer, achieve, create for the glory of God. I remember a 16-year-old girl who was in our church, who had a great problem. She finally wound up in the state mental hospital in Columbia, South Carolina. But in the midst of all of that confusion, God had given her a truth that I, I remember even to this day. She wrote a little poem and left it on my desk one time. She talked about the land of the living dead she said, these are the ones on whose tombs they'll inscribe. Died at 15. Buried at 75. Out of the night we breathe a sigh for those who are dead but cannot die. Oh, Jesus is coming to give life to people who died at 15. Who were killed when they were 21. 21 whose spirit was wrung out of them in some terrible catastrophic event, who gave up 30 years ago. Jesus, who is the resurrection, is coming to breathe life into walking dead men and walking dead women and say, you can. You can indeed. To impossible? too dangerous, too wild, I'll lose my job, my church, my reputation. Remember what Whittier said of all sad words of tongue or pen. The saddest are these. It might have been. Don't let that be the epitaph. It's written on your grave. They write an epitaph on your grave Let it be, he drowned trying to walk on water. (laughs) Hallelujah. We're challenging our children in the Buckingham household. To find a task that's so big that unless God intervenes, they are going to be failures. We're challenging our children. We've got four teenagers and one that's pre-teenage. To invest their futures in something that's going to cost them their lives. To go out and die, even at an early age. For the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the world doesn't understand that. The world thinks that we should be protecting our children, but I know that there is no glory outside that which is done strictly for the glory of God. Abundant life comes only when you give your life completely to God's call. And Jesus accomplished more in those 33 years than most of us accomplish in nine lifetimes because he heard the voice of the Father and he was willing to be killed in order to be obedient. Dangerous? Well, of course. And I say this with great openness and candidness. What's the use of living if you're not willing to die? There's no purpose to it, no purpose at all. Dwight L. Moody, a man with virtually no education at all, was challenged by a strange man who came to him and said, the world has yet to see what God can do with one man who's totally committed to him. And Moody said, I'll be that man. And 20 years later, he stood with one foot in Chicago and one foot in London, and he rocked two continents for the Lord Jesus Christ with the gospel because he was willing to do the impossible. In the October issue of McCall's magazine, there's an article by Dr. William Nolan in which he uh, from a medical standpoint, states why Catherine Kuhlman's ministry is totally ineffective. (laughs) I was with Dr. Nolan in Minneapolis when he made his research. He was there for one meeting. He interviewed 26 people And he reached the conclusion that all of this was a farce. Now his conclusion, and I don't want to run down the the medical science field at all. I praise God for it. But the conclusion that he reached was that there are some diseases that are hopeless. Everybody knows that multiple sclerosis and cerebral palsy And some forms of cancer are hopeless, totally hopeless. And on the basis of this, he says, because Catherine Kuhlman has failed to study medical terminology, she just blandly goes ahead, naively, childishly believing that there are some things that are not hopeless. And so he draws his conclusions of saying, It can't be done. And that even though these people are walking around saying that they've been healed, they really haven't been healed. (laughs) Because it's impossible to be healed from the scientific standpoint. I was in Alexandria, Louisiana last year to interview... Dr. Clifton Harris. Dr. Harris is a returned Southern Baptist medical missionary from China. He's the brother of the pastor who ordained me to the Baptist ministry years ago. He had returned from China back during the the occupation and after having been a a medical missionary there, a, a physician, a doctor, and while he was here in the States waiting to see what his assignment would be, since he could no longer go back to China, he had a terrible automobile accident, and uh, his hip was crushed in this automobile accident, and uh, when, uh, when he began to heal very slowly, why the hip was just fused together. And then arthritis set in around the hip, as is a normal circumstance in that, and the calcium deposits formed until his leg was stiff all the way from his waist all the way down, uh, past his, or to his knee anyway. That whole hip had just been fused in together in one great socket. And he had practiced medicine in the little town of Pineville, Louisiana, where he's a general practitioner, a country doctor there, right next to Alexandria had practiced medicine there for the last several years, and the pain had finally gotten so great that his teenage son had to push him up and down the corridors of the hospital in a wheelchair. And he would get to the door of the room where his patient was, and he would get up and brace himself against the wall, and could stagger in and talk to his patient, then back to the wheelchair, and then back up and down the corridors, and then back to his office, and he had to sit in a special chair in his office to where his patients came in. And then last year, he went to a Catherine Kuhlman meeting in Monroe, Louisiana. And in that meeting, he was healed. And um, he came back, and uh, the orthopedic surgeon had been making plans and arrangements for a complete hip transplant. They were going to take all this out and put a steel socket in there and everything. And he came back to his orthopedic surgeon. This is the physician going to the physician. And saying, you don't, don't need the surgery anymore, I'm healed. Say, look, see, I'm up walking around, the pain is all gone, praise God, Hallelujah!" <laughs> and the orthopedic surgeon said, well, let me x-ray it. He said, fine, no problem. So they ran him back through x-ray again. And when the x-rays came out, the orthopedic surgeon said, you're not healed. Look at these x-rays. Your hip is just like it was all along. You should be in excruciating pain. There is no way for you to walk. Dr. Harris says, well, praise the Lord. I was out there last year. Got there about four o'clock in the afternoon and he said, Man, we gotta have a prayer meeting in our office. And he called some folks, and we had about seventy five or eighty people in his office that night for a great prayer meeting. Holy Spirit has come upon him and his family and that whole town is being <clears throat> infected <laughs> by the Holy Spirit. Because because of a man who has said, God has done the impossible in my life 3 weeks ago my wife and I were in Germany <clears throat> went to uh, the cathedral at uh, at Worms where Martin Luther took his stand against the institutional church and there out there in a little flower garden the old cathedral has been destroyed but the <clears throat> the plaque is there and there in that rose garden is a little plaque where Luther stood and faced the whole church. I mean, this was the church of the world. And said, here I stand. I can do no other. Put me to death. But I cannot recant what God has said to me. And I stood there with tears and I said, hallelujah. God, raise up a generation of men and of women who will say, Here I stand. I can do no other. In Van Dyke's Otherwise Men, there's a beautiful little scene where Artaban is advised to go on the quest for the promised king. and he's warned it'll be a long, hard pilgrimage, and he may possibly find that his search will be empty. But then he closes out by saying, You know, it's better to follow even the shadow of the best than to remain content with the worst. I wonder this morning if there's anybody left who's willing to dream the impossible dream. Father God, you have said that every good gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights. I believe that you have called us into the kingdom to do the impossible. I believe the commission you have given us through your Son, Jesus Christ, is that even greater things than he has done shall we do through the power of the Holy Spirit. I confess I do not understand that, but God, I want to report to you.